If you could take the word of God, please, with me and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We'll begin reading with the first verse. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And we will end our reading there this morning. Trusting that God will bless the reading of his word. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank thee for the word of God and we would ask thee, Lord, for sinners just saved by grace, Lord, that you'd be pleased, pleased to bless and pleased to use us. That Jesus Christ, the lamb slain, might receive the rewards of his sufferings. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the book of Philippians. And last week, we began our consideration of the second part of Paul's introduction to the book of Philippians. And we noted that the introduction to the book really is verses 1 through 11. That's the introductory section. Verses 1 through 2 could be called the salutation. Verses 3 through 8 is Paul's thanksgiving. And verses 9 through 11 are his prayer for the church at Philippi. And we noted that this was something that was a formula used by people in the days of the New Testament to write letters. But Paul gospelizes this letter. Instead of just simply wishing, he thanks God for them and he prays for them. Instead of simply a greeting, he says, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been looking at verses 3 through 8. Last week we considered that the key to this section, this Thanksgiving section, is really two little words in verse 4, where Paul says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. With joy. And we noted that the key phrase is with joy. With joy. Paul is speaking of his remembrance of the church at Philippi and his praying for the church at Philippi. And he says, as I pray and as I remember them, I have joy. I have joy. And so we consider that church for Paul, the church at Philippi, was a source of joy. And how that many times for us, when we think about church, the people of a church, the congregation, a church, 
that the word that comes to our mind is not joy, but perhaps discouragement or frustration or stress sometimes or bitterness. That sometimes can be the case. And we noted that for Paul, the church at Philippi was a source of joy. And that in verses 3 through 8, we really find Paul expounding on five sources of joy. Five sources of joy in the church. And those sources of joy are, number one, thankfulness for the church, which we found in verse 3. Two, praying for the church in verse 4. Three, working with the church in verse 5, which we looked at last week. Four, confidence in God's work in the church, which we find in verse 6. And finally, five, affection for the church in verses 7 through 8. And the reason why Paul had joy was because he knew something of the sources of joy in his own life. And we described or defined joy to be this. Joy is an experience of delight in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit when a believer sees the glory of God and receives and obeys His Word. And we walked through each one of those last week. It is an experience of delight in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit when a believer sees the glory of God, receives and obeys His Word. And these sources for Paul produced this experience of delight in his soul. Sources of joy. Well, today, I'd like us to consider the fourth source of joy mentioned by the Apostle Paul, which we find in verse 6. As I prepared this, I realized that I wouldn't be able to get past verse 6. This is such an amazing, wonderful text and such a, a big text. And I think we can take the whole time this morning to consider it. And Paul says in verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The fourth source of joy for the Apostle Paul was confidence in God's work in the church. Paul was confident that God was working in the church, that God had begun a good work in the church. And the fact that it wasn't his work preeminently. He didn't begin it and he wasn't responsible to finish it. And he knew what they would one day become produced joy in his soul. And this was why he thanked my God upon every remembrance of you. One of the reasons why. One of the reasons why he had joy when he prayed for them. Every prayer of mine for you all. And in verse 5, he spoke of the fellowship that they had with him and the gospel. And no doubt he was saying, the reason why you've continued with me in the gospel is because God has begun a good work in you. So confidence in God's work in the church is the fourth source of Paul's joy. In verse 6, Paul outlines his certainty. He says, being confident, being confident. Now, the phrase confident, or the phrase being confident, this word confident means to be fully persuaded. As certain as any man can be, Paul had no doubt about it. He was 
confident. He was certain of this very thing. He's very careful to note what he was confident of. And what did Paul have such confidence in? What was Paul so confident of? Two things, namely. Number one, God had begun a good work in the church at Philippi. And number two, God would finish that work at the church in Philippi. So very simply, God began a good work and God will finish the good work. That was what Paul was confident of. God began a good work and God would finish the good work. And this produced joy in him to think about this, to meditate on this, to believe this. So first, consider with me that God began a good work. God began a good work. The Apostle Paul says that, this is what he's confident of, that he which hath begun a good work in you. He which hath begun a good work in you. He says that this is a good work. Well, what is this good work that began? This is the work of salvation. The word translated began here is only used in two places in the New Testament. It's only used here and in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3. And in both instances, it refers to the work of the Holy Spirit in saving grace. In both places, it refers to the work of the new birth and in its evidence of repentance and faith, it refers to salvation. The Apostle Paul says, a good work. Well, salvation is good. It is good in every respect. It is good because it brings man to a good standing before God, where once he was under condemnation and judgment. It is good because it transforms the heart of a sinful, wicked man into a good, God-loving man. It is good because it saves man from eternal punishment. And it is good because it reconciles man with a good God. So that for all eternity, he himself will be good as he is made into the, li- into the likeness of Jesus Christ and he will delight in goodness, in the full enjoyment of God forever. Salvation is good, not only in degree, but in quality. It is good in every respect. But salvation is also a work, the Apostle Paul says, a good work. A work. And he says that this work was done in you. Now, salvation is a work. It's not my work, but it is a work. I'm not saved on the grounds of my work. I, now, now, I must say, I do work in the sense that I do act in repentance and faith. But that activity of repentance and faith is me working out what God has worked in. But it begins with God working in you, in me. Paul says he works in us. Yes, we do work it out. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, For it is God which worketh in you, in you, both to what? Will and to do of his good pleasure. But then in verse 12, he says this, But now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out what God has worked in. 
But in the very act of repentance and faith, it all begins with the new birth. It all begins, we could say, if we use the word begin, not in the sense of time. It all occurs in one moment. But in the sense of logically, it begins with the new birth. A man in and of himself will never repent of his sins and trust Christ. He will never, ever do it. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 44, No man can come to me. He uses the word can. Ability. No man has the ability. No man can. You see, nobody in here can, unless you're extremely strong, no man in here can go outside and lift Ben's truck. No man can. I know no man can lift Ethan's truck. No man can. You don't have the ability. You don't have the ability within you. But see, it's, it's even more than just simply a lack of muscle or a lack of, of, of ability in the sense of, I just don't have enough. No, no, it's not, it's not that. It's like, it's like somebody that I knew one time who said after a sermon, man, I realize that my motor he was talking about himself in the metaphor of a car, needs a, new, needs a new part. I need to be fixed. And the preacher said to him, no, you need a new motor. You need a new motor. You see, your motor, your heart, is unable because it is unwilling. You have no desire in your sin for God. You have no desire for righteousness. You have no hatred for sin because your motor... Your motor is wrong. You need a whole new engine. You need a whole new heart. And that's why no man can. Jesus says again in verse 65 of John chapter 6, And He said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto Me. No man can come unto Me. He says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Nobody does good. Nobody seeks God. Nobody can because nobody will. Nobody has a desire. No one. You see, the reason why you are saved, it's not because you're more intellectual than someone else. Is that because you grew up in a home that someone else did not grow up in? It's not because you're a more morally, uh, morally, um, morally understanding than another person, uh, more enlightened than another person, more of a religious bend than another person. There's nothing in you, absolutely zero in you. There's no reason why you, in and of yourself, repent of your sin and trust Christ. God has to begin a work. God begins the work. But notice it says God began the work. God. And we need to finish John chapter 6 and verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. John chapter 6 verse 65. No man can come to me except it were given unto him of 
my Father. It must be given, but God can give it. God began the work in you. He began the work. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It wasn't of your will, it wasn't of your lineage, it wasn't of your blood, it wasn't of your name, it wasn't of anything but God. James chapter 1, verse 18, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Of his own will. Paul says in Romans 9, verses 15 through 16, he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It began with God. It began with God. You see, God, we need to understand, God didn't sit back and say, well, you take the first step and I'll meet you. You take one step, I'll take another step. You take another step and I'll take another one. Or I'll meet you halfway. Tell you what, if you seek me and, and you believe and you repent and you come this far, I'll come the rest of the way and I'll save you. That is not the picture the Scripture gives. The picture gives a, a script, a Scripture gives a picture of this. Man is running with all of his might headlong into hell. And he loves it. He wants nothing to do with God. He wants nothing to do with righteousness. He loves his sin. He loves his pleasure. He loves it. And if he's honest, even though he might have a veneer, might have a facade that he loves God and that he loves doing what is right. In truth, he loves his secret sin. He loves the pleasure of sin. And he runs after it. And he's, he's out of breath chasing it. And God comes down and plucks man out of the fire of his own sovereign will and grace. That's the picture that the scripture gives. But we need to be careful as well, noting that he which hath begun a good work in us results that new birth does result in our faith in repentance. So we note that Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It is given unto us to believe. Faith is a gift. It was given on the behalf of Christ. I heard John Greer say one time a great statement. He said, The work of Christ for us is the grounds of His work in us. And you can think about that. That's a great statement. But God gives us the faith. Nobody is born of God who does not believe. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Nobody believes that is not born of God. But here is the inverse. Nobody is born of God that does not believe. You don't sit and say, Hey, I think I've been born of God. Maybe I'll repent and believe tomorrow. Regeneration, the new birth, you're not conscious of it. The only thing you're conscious of is your need of Christ. 
The only thing you're conscious of is I'm a sinner that's going to go to hell because of my sin. And I see Jesus and He's died and He's made a way and I need to repent and believe. That's all you know. And you need to be careful of hyper-Calvinism. You don't say, well, God has begun the work and God's done the work so God repents and believes for me. I just sit there. God's going to repent and He'll believe for me. He's going to do something in me and I'm just going to wait till it happens. Whenever it happens, it'll be great. But I'm just going to sit and wait. No, the Bible says God commands all men everywhere to repent. All men are commanded by God to repent. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You will be held accountable for your lack of trusting Christ and for holding to your own sin. You say, well, I can't believe because I've not been born again. I can't repent because I've not been born again. That's not for you to know or for I to know. That's not a question we're to ask. The only consideration we're to have is, will I repent of my sin? Will I trust Jesus? And if you trust Him and repent, you'll know you've been born again. But you are to trust in Jesus to lay your soul on Him, to rest in His finished work, and to turn from your sin. Just I'm done with it. Christ will be my Lord. Christ will be my Master. I'm done with my sin. But God begins that work in us. So we need to be careful that we never become almost hyper-Calvinistic just to use a big word, but basically what that means is we just sit back in our seats and we say, well, God will save us whenever He wants to and God will save whoever He wants to whenever He wants to and we don't have to do anything. That's absolutely unbiblical. We work out what God works in. I think Ezekiel describes this truth very well. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. And then the results. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall keep my judgments and do them. The only reason why you walk in his statutes is because God has worked in your heart and made you a new creature. And there are some of us, perhaps this morning, I don't know your soul, I don't know where you are with God. But if you're honest with God, you say, you know what, to be honest, the Word doesn't really delight my soul. God doesn't really delight my soul. I'm not really interested in eternal things. I really could care less about God. To be honest with you, I love entertainment, I love the things of the world far more than God. I would much rather watch a show for six hours then I would think about God and consider God. Prayer is a drudgery. Church is a drudgery. There's nothing in it for me. I don't really feel my sin at all. It doesn't bother me. You need to seek God. Seek the Lord while He may be found. You don't just sit back and say, well, God's going to do something in me. Seek Him. Seek the Lord while He may be found. He may pass you by. That's a terrible thing to think about. He passes by some. And if you sit in your seat and you never seek Him, you never cry to Him, you never turn from your sin and trust Him, you'll have known that He's passed you by. 
take that to heart. There is a God in heaven before whom every man and woman and child will stand before. This life is brief, is but a vapor that endures for a moment, then it vanishes away, and every single created being will stand before the living God, every human being, and give an account for the deeds that they have done. And when there is a cross, and there is mercy, and there is grace, and there is blood, and there is a gospel, why would you be lost? Why would you go on in your sin? But God is so willing to save. God began a good work in the church at Philippi. He began this work in them. And that was why they have fellowship in the gospel with Paul. Because God began a good work in them. But second, consider God will finish the good work. Paul says that God will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The word perform means to accomplish, to finish, to carry through. And Paul is simply saying that the good work that God began in the church at Philippi, in, in giving them a new, a new birth, and that they're repenting in faith as a result, and then they're going on with God from the beginning until now, he says, I'm confident that, that will continue. Because God never does anything by halves, as William Hendrickson said. You see, we do many things halfway. And if you've ever worked on something and you just get plumb tired and you can't finish it, well, God never gets tired. He never gets too tired to finish the work he started. I don't know if sometimes you started something and you get a little bit bored with it and so you forget about it and you leave it. But God never gets bored with us and he never forgets and he never leaves us. I don't know if you've ever started something and realized this is too difficult for me to finish. Well, nothing's too hard for God. He never finds anything too difficult in us to finish. He never finds anything too hard for Him to do. No matter how far we go from God, no matter how deep our sin, He never says this is too hard for Him. God can finish the work and He promises to finish it. Now, note that He says He will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. This day is simply referring to that final future day when Christ will be seen in His glory, He will manifest His glory when He returns to judge the world and be met by His church, His bride. It's called the day of Christ in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 10, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ. And in chapter 2 verse 16, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. It's called the day of our Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 8. The day of our Lord Jesus. The day of the Lord. The day and that day in other places in Scripture. It's referred to as the parousia. The Greek word for the coming or the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in other Scriptures. This whole idea is rooted in the Old Testament teaching of the day of the Lord. Which you could read about in places such as Isaiah chapter 2 verse 12. Ezekiel 13, verse 5. Joel chapter 1, verse 15. The day of the Lord. The great end time day of judgment. And the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. The New Testament tells us that the day of the Lord is the day of Christ who is the Lord. Now this is a big subject. Without going off on a tangent on what the day of the Lord is and its implications, just suffice it to say this, what is beneficial to our text this morning. 
that God will keep us until the very last day. Until the day when the church from all ages, the Old Testament church and the New, the church from all ages will be raised up and presented spotless and perfect before Christ, fully vindicated for the full enjoyment of God forever. And 1 John chapter 3 tells us that we will see Him and we will be like Him. And that will be the completion of the work. But God will not stop His work until that day. And this is exactly what Jesus says in John 6 verse 44. No man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and him I will raise up at the last day. And in the original languages, you cannot take apart that sentence and say that there are some that he draws and some that he draws that will be raised. Everyone in the reference to the drawing is connected to the reference to the raising. You can't say he draws everyone and some of those people will be saved and be raised. In the original language, it, is, it cannot be. It cannot be taken apart. Those he draws will be raised. Everyone whom he draws, he will raise. And this is the doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints, or you could call it the preservation of the saints, or the perseverance of the Savior. Because the only reason why I persevere is because Christ perseveres. The perseverance of the saints is the doctrine that no man can ever lose his salvation. No one can be severed from the love of God. This is taught throughout all of the Bible. The Bible says in John 3.16, we have been given a life that is called eternal. The Bible says in Psalm 89 verse 33, we have been given promises that God will never forsake us. In 1 Peter 1 verse 4, we have been given an eternal inheritance that will never fade. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, we've been given a new heart that will never go back to its old state. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit that will never leave us, Romans 8 verse 9. We're in the hand of the Father and the Son and cannot be plucked out, John 10 verse 28 through 29. We've been called with a calling that cannot be revoked, Romans chapter 11, verse 29. We've been built on a foundation that cannot be destroyed. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. We're loved with a love that we cannot be separated from. Romans chapter 8, verse 39. We've been purchased by blood that cannot lose its power. 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been promised in an eternal covenant to the Father, to the Son, excuse me, by the Father, Jesus Christ, as the reward for his sufferings, Isaiah chapter 53 and John 6.37. We have been given an interceder, Jesus Christ, who pleads for us before the throne of God, Romans 8 verse 34. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who defends us before the throne of God, 1 John 2.1. We have a propitiation. We have a wrath bearer, who is Jesus Christ, who drank every drop of the cup of God's wrath, 1 John 2.2. The wrath is gone. We have a great high priest who sat down at the right hand of God, having made an end of my sin and your sin. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 12 through 14. Your sins are gone. We have a Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who suffered the punishment for our sins. Our punishment 
is gone. The Bible says that we have been perfected forever, that we have been justified. We have been reconciled. We have been redeemed. We have been adopted. We've been forgiven. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We're bound together with a chain that He who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world called us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He purposed that He would call us. And when He called us, He gave us a new heart to respond in repentance and faith. And He promises that He will glorify everybody that He chose and He called because we have been chosen in Christ and we are sanctified in Christ and we will be glorified in Christ and we are in Christ before the world was formed in eternity we are placed in Christ and we remain in Christ and we ever shall be in Christ and nothing in hell or heaven or earth can sever the saint from union with Jesus we are absolutely safe in Christ we cannot lose our salvation I submit to you that the Bible teaches that nothing can sever our souls from His love. Payment God will not twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. God doesn't deal in double jeopardy. It's done. The great transaction is done. It doesn't matter how far you run from God. It doesn't matter what you do, how, how much you blaspheme Him, how much you turn against Him, how much you sin against the Lord. If you're a true believer, He's going to bring you back. He will never forsake you. And nothing can sever you from His love. And I just have to ask this morning, although this passage is not dealing with Paul's own personal confidence, are you confident? Do you know that God has begun to work in you? Do you know that you're saved? Can you say with Paul in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12, I know whom I have believed. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Do you know God has begun a good work in you? Honest before God, your own heart, do you know? Can you say, I am confident? You know what the Bible says. You know the Bible teaches that if you're saved, you're saved eternally. But the question that probably plagues your mind is, have I believed? Is there evidence in your life that you believed? Is there evidence? If you're living in continual sin... You care nothing for God and His Word? I have great doubts about your salvation. And that should cause us fear and trembling to cry out to God to reveal Himself to us. But above all things, where do we find this confidence? It's in what Jesus has done. It's in all the Scripture verses that just rattled off to you. The promises of God's Word. That's the preeminent ground of assurance. He has told you plainly in His Word. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Him, no matter how small, no matter how weak that faith may be, that you are saved eternally. And brothers and sisters, that produces joy. Joy like no one knows. 
And if you lack in the department of joy, it may be because you lack this confidence to know that God has begun a good work in you. But in the context, Paul is talking about his confidence in the church at Philippi. He's not speaking about his own personal, but the confidence that he had that God began a good work in the church at Philippi. And Lord willing, next week we'll have to see, as he looks and as he speaks in verses 7 through 8, at the evidences of that confidence, etc. But why would this give him joy? In the first place, many believers, and this is probably more so true of leadership in the church, elders, deacons, but sometimes mothers and fathers, they have the burden of misplaced responsibility. They feel sometimes, but they would never say this, but sometimes our actions can betray our own hearts. And our worry and our anxiety can betray a wrong belief that lies within our hearts. And sometimes we act as if the responsibility is ours to keep our children saved. Or the responsibility is ours to keep people in a congregation saved. Or the responsibility is ours to save people. Responsibility is not yours or mine to save anyone. And it's not your or my responsibility to keep them saved. That's God's. Psalm 127, Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. If God doesn't build it, it's not going to get built. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we do. But then it says, If God, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. It's vain for you to be worried and anxious about everything. God says, For so he giveth his beloved sleep. And there's a sleep of faith. A rest of faith. A sleep of faith. Look, I'm not talking about a complacency where I'm not going to preach the gospel. I'm not going to be burdened for souls. I'm not going to be crying out to God. I'm not going to have urgency. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this. Once I have preached and I have prayed, I recognize it is my job to sow the seed. It is my job to seek the Lord's face. But it is not my job to cause a man to be born again. And I rest in faith and confidence. Spurgeon, when he walked up to the pulpit, he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's my confidence. And that keeps us from unnecessary worry and anxiety and, and, and just almost getting to a point where you can get to a faithless, a faithless wrestling with people. Instead of understanding, sometimes I need to pray and leave it with the Lord. It's not my responsibility or yours to keep anyone saved. If God has begun a work in a believer in this congregation, you can be rest assured He will finish the work. And I'm going to do and you're going to do what the Bible tells us to do, but it is not our responsibility. It is God's. And He'll take care of it. Trust me. God will take care of it. The Lord says, I will build my church. He'll build it. He'll build it. You can rest assured. He will build his church. But then another thing, and last, I think this also brought Paul joy because it warded off the sin of cynicism. It's very easy to focus on the failures 
of church members and people in a congregation, as Paul could have done with the church at Philippi. We mentioned that before. There are many issues at Philippi. Lack of unity was one of them. False teachers, we mentioned those things. And it's very easy to focus on the failures of a church. And to be critical, and what's another bomb to criticism? It's this. Think about what they're going to be. Think about what they're going to be. He might, he, might, he might really make things difficult for you right now. You might be praying and pleading with God and you keep talking to that brother or that sister. When are they going to realize what they're doing? And they just drive you up the wall. Right? When is this believer going to mature? Oh, they're so immature. Oh, they don't understand the word. I've been laboring and trying to teach them again and again and again. And it just and it can make us critical and it can make us cynical. But think for a moment about what they're going to be. That believer is going to be like Jesus one day. He's going to be perfect. He's going to be glorified. So why don't we just enjoy the journey? Because there's not one person in the room who's not going to be glorified, who's saved. Not one. And sometimes it can, it can get frustrating perhaps or, or tiring to keep laboring with a believer to bring them along. But don't forget what they're going to be. And so let's just enjoy. Let's just enjoy the way that God sanctifies us and brings us to that place to be one day like the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that it's not like a, a football game or a basketball game or something where you mess up and your team fails. If we mess up, our team's not going to fail. We're going to be saved, each and every one. And that should give us great joy when we think of the church. We consider God has begun a work in this church. God will keep the work He's begun in people's souls. And imagine what they're going to be one day as they're glorified before the face of Jesus Christ. Well, we trust that God will bless His word to us this morning. Let's end with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank and we bless Thee that You keep the work that You have begun. And Lord, we pray that You begun, begin more works, Lord, that You save more souls. We know, Lord, that You use our prayers to accomplish Your will. Lord, would You please save souls. Build us up in our most holy faith. Use us for Your glory. And give joy to Thy people as they leave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.